All right. Well, as the children prepare to leave with their leaders, we're going to return to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we are advancing to this week, in which Solomon teaches us that everything has its time. Everything has its time. When you think about those words, everything has its time, we can pretty quickly think, well, that must be true. Because almost everything in our life seems to be governed by time. We wake up in the morning, probably by an alarm clock that's set for a certain time for us to get up so that we can get to work on time or to school on time. Notice that we even have a time in which we start church. 10.30 is our start time, unless Josh, of course, is running a little bit late, which he sometimes does, right? But 10.30 is our start time, so everything seems to have time. We will even do this. If we can't be at home, and we know the playoff games are this afternoon, we'd really like to see them, and the best way to watch one of them, by the way, is to record it and then fast forward to the commercials. We'll set the DVR so we will not miss it at the time that it's supposed to start. Or we'll do the same things to one of our favorite movies or television shows. So yes, it seems that everything has its time. Our world seems to revolve around time. Every weekday morning, with the exception of tomorrow, because tomorrow I don't have to work as Martin Luther King's birthday and we get the holiday. But every other normal Monday through Friday, I find myself on bus three going through Princeton and I constantly look at my watch to make sure I'm getting to the next house on time to pick up those kids to get them to school on time. We do that. Everything seems to be on time. We have watches to keep us on time. We have appointment calendars to help us remember to get to the doctor or the dentist at a particular appointment time. We have weddings and funerals and birthdays and anniversaries, all according to a certain time. Everything has its time. So the world is not a chaotic mess. Now, at times, it may seem like it is a complete mess. But in reality, what we may view as chaos is actually in control by God. So Solomon then points us to this truth, and he learns today and points us to this theme, that God is sovereign, and he is certainly, most certainly, in control, regardless of the powers that remain and the events in life that seem to suggest otherwise. That's the theme we'll find for Solomon in his conclusion today as we look into Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verses 1 through 8. So stand with me this morning as we stand simply to honor the reading of the word. And it says then from Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1, he says these words. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Then it gets quite specific. Verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep 
and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Father, Lord, we come to you at this present time, in this moment, this hour, this day, Lord, seeking your wisdom, asking, Lord, that you'll guide us through these words that we've read here today. We ask, Lord, that these words that be expressed today, the message we shall receive, be the message, the words that you want us to hear upon this day. And we pray, Lord, not only would the words be expressed, but it would penetrate our hearts. Help us understand the text, certainly, Lord but also see how it applies to our lives in the modern day that we live. So let's be thankful for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. March 23rd, 1923. I was not living, but John Elford probably was. You weren't yet born on March 15th, 1923? How about Dan? You You weren't alive yet either? I thought you guys were that old. Not quite. I don't know that any of us were alive on March 23rd of 1923, but on that particular day, Time Magazine was published. It cost 15 cents. You can't buy anything today for 15 cents, but on that first publication of Time Magazine, it would have had 15 cents. You could have bought the magazine. Over the years, Time Magazine quickly grew in circulation. In 2012, it had a circulation of 3.3 million copies per week, making it the second most weekly circulated magazine in the United States, just behind the ever-popular People magazine. But over the years, as people continue to use social media and the Internet more, its circulation has declined. In fact, Time magazine has reduced its weekly print circulation to just under 2 million. But on the surface, you would think that a magazine called Time would somehow, some way, be associated with Time. But a little known fact is that Time Magazine, T-I-M-E, Time Magazine, has nothing to do with Time. In fact, those letters, T-I-M-E, Time is actually an acronym for the International Magazine of Events. But while the magazine is not actually then associated directly to time, the success of the magazine really cannot be disputed. And that's probably perhaps because Time Magazine suggests that people are curious about timely information and events and world news. Which Solomon then, to come back to the text and begin to analyze it, Solomon would suggest that that is true, that people are interested in timely information and worldly events and and things pertaining and, and news that we can gather. And then he says, further then, not only are they interested in worldly events and timely information, but he says everything then would have its own time. Therefore, in the midst of searching for meaning and purpose, the preacher pauses for reflection from the first two chapters. As you go back to the text and begin to look over it then, and look over the reading, all eight verses, look with me and see that something seems to be different. If we look into these eight verses of the beginning of the third chapter, this is our third week looking into Ecclesiastes, 
and we should see something noticeably different. We should see that it's not written as it was in the first and second person as we found in the previous two chapters. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 were written differently. Here, chapter 3 is different. There's noticeably not the first and third person. So we can sense that Solomon is now past the first and third person narrative and is now beginning to settle and contemplate the timeliness of all things. Now we're going to dig deeper in that in just a moment. But before we do, let's observe these eight verses once more and see that when you get past verse 1, verses 2 through 8, which seems to be the meat of the verses, the meat of the text, is presented in what really could be called a poem. It's very poetic in nature. In fact, there are 14 couplets and 28 statements in the poem. Furthermore, there are 14 negative statements and 14 positive statements. And then they fall into three categories. The first describes the influence of time on our bodies. The second focused upon our souls. And the third deals with our spirits. Now, as interesting as that may seem to be, which some say that's not interesting at all, and others think, well, yeah, that's kind of cool to know it's poetic. That is not really the most notable observation. As you get further into the third chapter, you're going to notice the most notable observation is the fact that God is mentioned eight times in this chapter. Eight different times Solomon is now referring directly to God. Now, ironically, it's not at all is God's name mentioned in the first eight verses we read for today. But I tell you that because not only maybe you can read the rest of the chapter, but because it's worth making a special notation. I don't know if you ever write notes in the Bible or take notes during the message, but a special notation as we look into the life of Solomon. I mean, Solomon is trying to find out meaning and purpose in life. And as we begin to look at what he's dissecting in life, the things that he's done, He's now graduated past the things that personally applied to him and now is looking towards things that God has control of. So I say that then because I want us to recognize that Solomon is beginning to look above the sun. He's been concentrating on everything under the sun. But now he's beginning to look above the sun for meaning and purpose. And recall real quickly, in the previous chapters and previous messages, that Solomon has tried everything under the sun to find meaning and purpose. And meaning has not been found in all the things that he has tried, that he has experimented with. It could not be found in his enormous wealth, in all of his possessions. If you heard the message last week, we see they had 12,000 horses. Who needs 12,000 horses? He had them in abundance. He had great wealth. But not only did he have great wealth and possessions, which did not define any meaning and purpose for him, he had bunches of worldly pleasures at his disposal. He also had built magnificent buildings and temples and pools and vineyards and gardens. And again, it found no meaning and purpose. And he constantly was searching for wisdom and education, which he said, again, has not been his meaning and purpose. So Solomon now considers the sovereignty of God and reflects upon time 
And so he states in verse 1 that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. For everything there is a time, for everything there is a season. Now listen, it does not take a highly educated scholar. It doesn't take obtaining a college degree, getting a master's or doctorate, a philosopher or scientist to realize and to detect that everything has a season. We can realize that. It doesn't take a highly educated person to tell us that. It doesn't take me reminding you that. Times and seasons are a regular part of life, no matter where we may live. Now, it may vary depending on where we may live in a particular region or somewhere in the world, but everybody has seasons. They still occur no matter where we are. In fact, listen to this. The variance in times and seasons that seems to be worldwide and by region is not an indicator that things are confusing or a chaos but rather that God is in complete control. The various and we find in seasons and times should reveal to us that God is in complete control. Consider what God had told Job. When Job was contemplating the sovereignty of God, God made it abundantly clear that he is in control. When Job began to question in Job 38, God responds to him and says, Hey, Job, where were you? Have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you ever seen the snow, the storehouses of hail? Verse 24, he says, What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? He says, Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and for a thunderbolt to bring rain upon the land? I mean, Job learned, like all of us eventually learned, like Solomon now knows, that God is in complete control. It all points and certainly suggests that God is sovereign and in control. So much so that even the seasons obey and respond. Warren Worsby adds this. He said, were it not for the dependability of God-ordained natural laws, both science and daily life would be chaotic, if not impossible. Not only are there times and seasons in this world, but there is an also an overruling providence in our lives. From before our birth to the moment of our death, God is accomplishing his divine purposes, even though we may not always understand what he is doing. And words be spot on. I mean, he's correct in his statement. I mean, it may not always seem to make sense to you and to me, but it always makes sense to God because he has the big picture and he sees the end in mind. As Isaiah pointed out in chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For the heavens are higher than the earth. And so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, God is sovereign and in control. Regardless of the powers that remain and events in life that seem to suggest otherwise. And then Solomon begins to obviously learn this himself. We go back to the poem in verses 2 and 3. And we find then that he realizes there is an association with time in your physical life. Let's look at verse 2. 
where he says, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Notice in verse 2, as Solomon begins, he's made the generalized statement that everything has its time and season, and now he makes the first statement. He, he, he contemplates all things, and he begins his reflection, his contemplation upon time with a very sobering observation that both birth and death have their appointed times. Now, we don't like to think about death so much. We get joys and occasionally very happy about the birth. But it reminds us that birth and death both have their appointed times. But then think of this. We try to control that. I mean, we have things like abortion and birth control. There is mercy killing. There is surrogate uh, parenthood that make it look like man is in control of things like birth and death. But Solomon tells us otherwise that birth and death are not human accidents, that they are indeed divine appointments. For God, not man, is in control of these things. Now, man tries to control them, but man fails in his control. He tries to put upon birth and death. Now, I was thinking about this, I was thinking about our Wednesday study, and I thought, well, the perfect example in our Wednesday study of 12 extraordinary women, we're right now currently on Sarah. And Sarah provides the perfect example of this in her life. And if you know Sarah, remember that Sarah is barren. I mean, she simply cannot have children. But God appeared to Abraham and told Abraham that, yes, he would have children, that he would have an heir, that he would have a son. But again, remember, Sarah can't have children. So after word is given to Abraham, and however he communicates that to Sarah, they wait 10 years, and there's still no children. So what do they do? Well, they take control of the situation. Sarah helps God by giving her maidservant Hagar to her husband Abraham. And of course, then Hagar conceived. But it was never part of God's plan. He didn't need their help. But they intervened, and they tried to control the situation of having the birth of a son. But God was always in control and provide a son to Sarah in due time. Again, they took it upon their own hands to intervene and help God and try to control the situation. But that's what we do. We think that something hasn't happened quickly enough in our lives. I mean, we've prayed about it. We've asked God respond at a particular time, and nothing has happened. So because it hasn't happened, we intervene, and we maintain control to make it happen. Or so it seems we do often at times in our life. But here, Solomon learns rather quickly that God is in control. <laughs> he is in control even of life and of death. And Solomon then reminds us of this very truth. Note the words of the psalmist. The psalmist expressed the same. In Psalms 139, verse 16, he said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
when as yet there was none of them. I mean, God knows exactly when the next baby shall be born, and he knows all the days that we shall have. So it tells us, again, that God is sovereign in control. It's getting repetitive. God is sovereign in control, regardless of the powers that remain in events in life that seem otherwise, even of life and of death. Meanwhile, then Solomon just doesn't stop there. He reminds us that there is also a time to plant and a time to harvest. A time to plant and a time to harvest. Now, little known fact, some of you may know this. When I was a boy growing up in Hazel, Indiana, farming was like in my blood. I mean, I've often told people that I should have been a farmer in life. I just love it. It's just part of what I like to do. I and mean, as a child, there was a variety of farming opportunities available. I would find myself as a child working in the melon fields in Decker. I would have myself in hay fields all around Hazleton. And in Hazleton, there also was a lot of strawberry fields. And I was always in them working, helping the farmer on that particular day. So obviously today, I'm not a farmer. Yeah, maybe I should have been because it's in my blood, but I wouldn't become a farmer. But I love to garden. And as I love to garden, I recognize that there's a certain time to plant and a certain time to harvest. Right? I mean, who is about to take a tomato plant and put it out there this month? I mean, it just doesn't happen. You don't plant tomatoes in December and January. You just don't do it. Why? Because it's too cold. They're not going to grow. When I lived in Texas, I used to try to push the envelope a little bit. Sheila and I would like to garden. We'd have this big area. We had 10 acres of some property in, in Texas. And so we had this big garden. And we'd like to try to be the first to have tomatoes. So we would take some tomato plants around February. It's a little warmer in Texas, by the way. So we would put these tomato plants in the, garden, in the ground around February, maybe early March. And just as seems as though we have done so, what happened? There was frost, and it killed them instantly. So you just don't plant them when it's cold because they're not going to grow. People realize that. If you like to garden because there's a time to plant and a time to harvest. But even deeper then reminds us that God is in control of every season. He's in control of nature. Seasonal changes provide climate changes for things to grow and to be harvested. Note here again, just like it was with death and birth, that man is not in control of nature and the seasonal changes. God is sovereign, and God is in control. Again, regardless of the powers that may remain, and events is just otherwise, of life and death, and then eating and planting and harvesting. But there are things then that relate to our physical life. But Solomon again goes further. And begins to reflect upon healing and breaking down and building up. In verse 3, he says, there's a time to kill, then a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Now, most people look at verse 3, who've read through Ecclesiastes, and they get to the third chapter, and verse 3 bothers them because the phrase, the time to kill. So allow me to explain for just a moment, it does not refer to murder as we may tend to think of kill. And for that matter, it does not even refer to war. 
So you may ask, well, what does it mean? Well, observe in verse 3 that the time to kill is paired with a time to heal, which suggests that Solomon referring to the results of sickness and plague in the land in which he lived. Even Hannah referred to it very similarly in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, where she said the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and he raises up. So in essence, the time to kill and the time to heal are directly related to the fact that God, we may not like it, but here's the truth, God permits some to die while others are healed. Now we can't generally make sense of that, but nonetheless it's true. Some people are healed, and then others go to their heavenly home. Perhaps we could sum that up by saying that God is in control of life and death. I mean, Solomon's already told us that. But he can use life, death, healing, and much more to accomplish his purpose. It all points us again back to the repetitive theme that God is in control regardless of the powers that remain and of life events that suggest otherwise. Of life, death, planting, harvesting, all those things directly to physical life. But if Solomon doesn't stop there, we go to verses 4 and 5, and we see that he contemplates time in our emotional life. In verse 4, he says, It's time to weep. And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Now I often tell people, which people define particularly to my family because they're the one closest to me most of the time, that you can control your emotions. But when I say that, what I really mean is that you can control your behavior and your attitude. As in, when you wake up in the morning, you can decide if you're going to be grumpy and grouchy and irritable and have a frown on your face throughout the day, you can decide that early, or you can decide early if you behave in your attitude to be smiling and friendly and welcoming and loving. But your emotions are somewhat different. Now, you may not agree, but let me tell you, I have tried constantly in life to control my emotions. When a child accepts Christ during vacation Bible school, I begin to get emotional. I just can't help it. It just happens. When my dad died, I got emotional. I tried not to. When my children and grandchildren are hurt in some fashion, some way, I get emotional. Even though I tried to be strong during that moment, it still happens. I mean, often our emotions get the better of us when we least expect it. So Solomon then reflects upon all of that, and he sums it up by saying that there is a time, a time will occur in which it is right for us to weep or to mourn or to cry or to laugh and to dance and to embrace and so forth. But maybe Solomon's wisdom then that he has expresses the truth that one day we won't have tears, that they will all be just simply wiped away, that day when there will be no more sadness or sorrow or crying and pain. John, in his wisdom that he received from Revelation and in, in going to Patmos, refers to it in Revelation 21.4, in this future time to come, he says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. I mean, Dr. Jeremiah adds perspective to it and maybe has a fitting conclusion when he says, Your tears are God's jewels. They are precious to him. The greater your suffering, the greater his ministry and grace for you. We need to laugh, but sometimes we must also cry. The Lord is near to us in both sadness and gladness. One day, he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes, and the days of crying will be forgotten. But for now, there is a time to laugh and a time to weep. A fitting conclusion for what Solomon's telling us in the matter of time, of things pertaining to our emotions. But Solomon's not yet at all finished reflecting upon time. His last reflection in verses 6 through 8 is time in your and my spiritual life. The last three verses have to do with decisions, the deep commitments of our lives. Look at verse 6. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. I mean, the simple truth is that sometimes in life we do gain. But sometimes we also lose. We can lose things like money. We can lose weight. We can also gain weight, right? We can gain, we can lose. Now, hair. We seem to lose more hair than we gain. Pearl's back there right now rubbing Chase's head. But we seem to also gain and lose loved ones. But we also in life gain and lose rights, responsibilities, joys, and possessions. So it is a simple truth that sometimes we gain and sometimes we lose. We seek, we gain, we lose, we keep, we throw away. Or do we throw away? I don't know if I have shared with you that in our house we have a lid drawer. A drawer in the kitchen just has a bunch of lids that don't go to any bowls in the kitchen. And I don't get it. I mean, I'm listening to Solomon. He says, okay, it's a time to keep and a time to throw away. I'm thinking all those lids, put them thrown away. Put them right in the trash. We don't need them anymore. We're supposed to keep. We're supposed to throw away, according to what Solomon is telling us. A time to keep, time to gain, time to throw away. We store things, sometimes it seems forever, in the drawer, in the garage. Have you noticed that we will even rent a garage and put stuff in it and keep it rather than throwing it away? Sometimes we clean it out. Sometimes we keep it forever. Or sometimes, Jeannie, we even put it in a yard sale, won't we? And we get a lot of stuff to come to the yard sale. When it finally gets discarded, it finally comes, we discard it, we throw it away. So Solomon's telling us that in this last segment of what he's dissecting about things in life. Now, as thinking about that, I also think it's rather interesting that not only does that happen to families, but even large corporations have that to happen in life. They even do this. In periods of boom and expansion, they build to gain. Only later then, they may dismantle, discard, and throw away what they had initially set out to do. But here then is the point that we should see 
through Solomon's words of wisdom pertaining to this last segment. The, the gaining, the exploring, the discarding is, yes, relevant to our spiritual lives. Meaning that there are times in which we need to get deeply into the word and to reflect upon it and just simply meditate because it allows us to be cleansed. We collect in life just a bunch of junk in our life. We sin. We have filth. And we need to be cleansed from that. We need to throw away that junk, throw away that filth that just seems to attach to us in life. So Solomon is telling us that when we get into the word, we can erase that stuff. We can get rid of that. We can discard it. We can throw it away. He's saying we can gain spiritually when we spend time in the word, which allows us to throw away or discard the mental stress that we accumulate in life, the filth, and the things we have from daily living. Or Solomon just words it differently. He says there's time to seek, time to lose, time to keep, and a time to cast away. But yet, he's not quite done. He points us to more time. Verse 7, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak. Which simply reveals the truth that there are times we need to speak up, and there are times we just need to keep our mouths shut. And not say anything. Because sometimes, as it seems to be the case more often than not, we say something and someone will get their feelings hurt. And sometimes the words, or often it seems the words, do more damage than the physical abuse. The physical seems to eventually go away. While the verbal stings for so much longer. In that regard, Solomon actually beats James to the punch, but concurs with him when James says this, the tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Solomon says it differently. He says there's a time to speak and a time to keep silent. Both are saying the same thing to manage that tongue. And finally then, he says in verse 8, there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. The trouble part of this verse is hate and war. People struggle with a time to hate and a time for war. But so did Solomon. I mean, Solomon struggled also with the fact that there's time for hate and a time for war. I mean, he struggled with hate and he struggled with war, but he's merely reflecting upon the fact that there is in life times that people hate and there is war in life. I mean, not that we should hate anyone, but rather than he recognizes that there is a time to hate in which we should hate evil. We should hate all the evil things that happen. We should hate that there is war. We should hate that there is rape and there is murder and there is drugs, that there is abortion. We should even hate the fact that there were rioting in the Capitol last week. We should hate these things. But they do occur in life. So he says then there is a time to hate. And then eventually there also is a time for war to happen. Not that we like it, but there is that time. 
Notice as he says that there is a things we hate. I hate abortion, the murder, the drugs, all these different things. Notice he said there's a time for hate. It doesn't pertain to people. But rather the result of people's actions. In other words, he's saying we hate the sin, but not the sinner. You may have heard those words before. So notably Solomon reflection of time includes the fact that there are going to be these kinds of times of life that exist in our life. When we love people, but hate the sin in their and our lives. We will hate war and the differences that exist. But rather than seek peace, he says these words as he contemplates, reflects upon time. Now everything has its time. So then Solomon has had much to contemplate. We've only actually hit the surface of his reflections in regards to time as he contemplates upon it. We could possibly dissect this text for another hour or so. But let's conclude the message by making this observation. That timing is essential. Timing is important. All the things he listed in these eight verses are part of our lives. We're born. We die. We plant. We harvest. We cry. We laugh. We gain. We lose. We love. We hate. And we should seek peace. But the true secret to peace as we seek it is to discover, accept that God is mighty. God is sovereign. And he is in complete control. And to recognize then and to truly appreciate that God's timing is perfect. Everything is according to God's time. You may have heard it said before, maybe even said the words, that God is never late. He is always on time. And how then at the appropriate time in life he sent his son into this world, not that to condemn the world. As John 3.17 tells us, he did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world. He decided at the right time, the perfect timing of God, to send his son into this world so that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everything is according to God's perfect timing. Now, maybe the time is present here this morning. Maybe the time is for you to finally accept his sovereignty, his control. Maybe the time is right for you to finally say, yes, God, yes, your son, I believe, I shall receive. Maybe that time is today. Father. Lord, we thank you for this message, and we thank you for the truthfulness that it gives to us. And I pray for everyone here today, Lord, to receive his truth. Lord, there is your perfect timing in our lives. We don't fully understand the events that unfold at a particular time. But we recognize that you do, that you have a plan, that you are in control. So today, Lord, we submit ourselves to you and to your perfect timing. Lord, we relinquish our control to you. 
We surrender to you today. Lord, we just pray that you'll be with us then as we begin to contemplate this message you have for us today pertaining to timing. And we pray, Lord, to be anyone here today who has not yet taken the time to accept Christ in their life. That shall do so today, before it may be everlasting too late. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the goodness you give to us. And thank you, God, for sending your Son for us at your time. In your name we pray. Amen.